You're listening to the Family Discipleship Podcast, a podcast of training the church. This is Adam Griffin, and before I introduce you to our distinguished guests, let me first introduce you to my lovely co-host. Unfortunately, Cassie Bryant's not able to be with us today, but we do still have the effervescent Chelsea Griffin, my wife. How you doing today, Chelsea? I'm good. I mean, today's the first day ever that I've been described or called effervescent, so oh. it's hard not to be thankful, you know? <laughs> That's what we get for me not writing our own vows. I would have definitely worked it in there. That would have that been That's a good perfect. point. Let's redo that. Let's renew them. <laughs> I'm up for renewing them. And what yeah. a distinct honor to have with us today on today's episode. Author, pastor, father, husband, John Tyson. How are you doing today, John? I'm doing really well. I I have elements of effervescent, but not fully effervescent. Not like oh. Chelsea is. Mm. <laughs> a percentage, though. John, I'm so glad you're on with us today. But especially, I need you to resolve something, a conflict in Chelsea and I's marriage. There's a Australian slang term that I have used many times that drives my wife nuts. And she has told me that I cannot use it again until I check with an actual Aussie okay. to make sure that it's being used correctly. And I, let's go. I, I don't know if drive nuts is 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 accurate, but Chelsea doesn't like it. Can I say that, Chelsea? Does that sound? Well, also, to be fair, I'd say I wasn't saying check, like verify this phrase with a real Australian on a recorded version of something. <laughs> I meant like in the background, you know, so that. Well, let's, let's go. Let's solve okay. this tension right now. Okay. Let's do go some ahead. family work. Yes. The phrase fair dinkum. And its usage. Yes. When is the appropriate time to use the words fair dinkum? And what does it mean? So fair dinkum, uh, well, again, it has some nuance to it depending on the context. So fair dinkum, you could say, uh, like questioning, like fair dinkum, like saying, are you serious or is that real? Like fair dinkum, mate? You're like, yeah. Also, you can use it in the sense of like, I'm being completely honest, which is like fair dinkum, mate. Fair dinkum. Serious. Like I'm telling you the truth. Like I'm telling you. No, listen. And if someone is sort of like, it's a credibility word. So if someone is like, are they, you know, are you being honest? Yeah, fair dinkum, mate. I'm being totally honest. Oh. So how, how are you using it? Like, oh. wow, that food was great, fair dinkum. <laughs> yes. You know, like, was, like ketchup on a hot dog or something. I think I was more using it like something was really good. Like, man, your intentional father, the book Intentional Father, man, fair dinkum. Like that is So no, how stuff. you would say that? You would actually say this. You would actually say, fair dinkum, mate, that book was great. Okay, like I'm telling the truth. Yes. Okay. I I think the bottom line here, Adam, is that unless you live in Australia, I don't think that you're going to gain confidence and command over that phrase. Yeah. Chelsea, I listen. I listen. If if I had to side somewhere, I'm siding with Chelsea on this one. Thank you. It <laughs> Thank requires you. Okay. context. You could use a different one that's a lot easier, like Arvo for afternoon. Arvo. You could say, "Oh, it's Tuesday, Arvo, mate. I'm really tired." Oh. That's helpful. Arvo's a good one, yeah. We had a group of Australians uh, from a church here not long ago, and they told us they wanted to get, um, they wanted to leave a little later for the airport because they thought they could get a good run in. And we thought they meant that they were going to go exercise, and they meant that traffic wouldn't be bad. But it was very confusing yes. to us. Yes, there's, there's a, the worst confusion I've ever had in my marriage, my wife said. I talked about running on the spot which is the American equivalent of running in place. Yeah. And I was like, you're driving me nuts. I'm basically sitting here running on the spot waiting for you. <laughs> and she's like, where, where is this? Why would you run on a spot? Like a spot of what? What spot? Anyway. <laughs> That's great. Well, John, we could spend the whole time talking about Australian slang and Chelsea would not enjoy it. I would love it. But we have something better for our listeners today. 
Uh, and I want to talk, uh, I, first, let me explain. I have loved your book. I thought your book, The Intentional Father, was so helpful to me as a dad of three boys. And we've gotten a group of men together here at our church to talk through it. It's been a huge blessing. So I'm excited for the listener who's not uh, read it to get a little view of it from you. But before we jump into some of that content, could you tell our listeners, our listeners a little bit about who you are, who you are as a uh, pastor, as an author, as a father, who's John Tyson? So I am originally from Australia. I grew up in a city called Adelaide, uh, which is um, the geographical equivalent of Texas in the middle down the bottom, but it could not be any different from Texas if it tried. <laughs> um, not too far from basically the Napa Valley of Australia, the wine region is probably what our state is most famous for. Uh, I became a Christian. I dropped out of high school when I was 16 to be a butcher to work in a meat factory. So I am by training a butcher. Um, I became a Christian when I turned 17, got a vision to come to the US, felt called by God as a missionary to America, which is kind of weird. Got a scholarship to study theology when I was 20. Met a girl doing the campus orientation tour of my freshman year. And we are about to celebrate our 23rd uh, year anniversary. Let's go. Congratulations. Wow. Thank you. Yes, uh, we've had two years of, that were a total hellscape, two years that were not bad, and the rest of it has been bliss. Uh, I'm recently an empty nester. My son's uh, uh, a junior in college. My daughter's a freshman. She's studying nursing. All right. Uh, and I moved to New York City 16 years ago to plant a church, and I've been there ever since. So New York is what I call home. Oh, that's so great. That's awesome. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Well, uh, one of the reasons that we wanted to talk with you is you've written a book about raising your son. For those who haven't read the book, can you tell us what it is, um, what it's about, and why you wrote it? Well, um, so let me tell you what it is. It is a, it is a book that gives overwhelmed but determined dads. If you're not those two things together, this is not your book. So if you're <laughs> like, no, I'm, ex I'm killing the father game, it's great. Keep doing your thing. Um, if you're and and then if you're not determined, this book will be too hard for you. Which means if you're looking to wing parenting mm. with a few little hacks and tricks, I just think it's too hard to parent. But if you're overwhelmed but determined, like boy, do I have a book for you! And basically, what the book is, it's designed to help dads walk sons from adolescence into manhood. Hmm. Almost all human societies have had a conscious, recognized, clear pathway for male formation into healthy masculinity. And uh, we're one of the only societies in recorded history that doesn't have that. So I tried to do a ton of research, recover that. And then it basically tells the story of taking my son on that six-year journey. The reason I wrote the book, there's probably three reasons. Number one, because I love my son and I was just desperate to you know, I came up with this stuff because I felt overwhelmed as a dad. I wanted to help him. Um, so I did it out of love. Secondly, I did it uh, as a pastor because I see so many young men with father wounds trying to make sense yeah. of their lives and yes. how to get healing on that. And then largely, I want to speak into the toxic masculinity of our society and present better Christian men for the renewal of the world. Yeah, Come So on. I'm wanting to address the thing that people are not talking about. So those are the, the big reasons why I wrote the book. Yeah, I love what you said about determination because it really does come through. Like you dedicated a lot of time to the discipleship of your son and it seems very regimented, very serious. It's a serious commitment to discipling him and I understand why, but 
Can you tell us, uh, one of the things you talk about in there is that every morning, and I, don't, I think it was maybe every weekday morning, you were meeting with your son yes. as he entered into adolescence until he left your home. Can you just give us a view, give us a window view into what that time looked like? What does every morning discipling your son look like? Well, I want to say this, your son's going to have every morning available for something. Yeah. So if parents sent their kids off for two-a-day football, nobody would blink. They'd just say, oh, that's good. Um, Mormon kids spend an hour every day in high school studying the Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants. They don't blink. Christians are the only one who perceive the idea of spending time with your children and helping them follow Jesus and get ready for adult life to be weird. Do you know what I mean? So (laughs) it's like people are pushing back to like, that's so much time. I'm like, if your son got up an hour every morning to do his homework, all you would do is clap for him. Yeah. But when you get up to prepare them, like all of a sudden this is like a radical idea. So Gosh. anyway, so so I want to say the idea is normal. It was it was real work, but basically what I would do is I basically built this pathway to help, yeah, basically navigate adolescence into adulthood. How do you deal with these frustrating complex energies, sexuality, aggression, friendship, disillusionment? you know, f- first moments, all those sorts of things. So I wanted to give him some some background on that. So in the mornings, I would take, depending on what we were studying, what unit we were studying, um, I would basically take like a section of scripture. Uh, then I would take some sort of wisdom, like some sort of like wisdom tradition, somebody who's thought really well about the issue. We'd study that. And then I'd normally ask like a pretty great question. And I found that like I parented, and did a lot of development by helping my son think through very, very simple but complex questions. And then we would sit and process it, and then uh, he'd go off to school. So that would take, I don't know, some days half an hour, some days 45 minutes, depending on how much we would shoot the breeze. And then, boom, off we'd go. Daily formation. I, I want to ask you more about one of the questions I've heard you talk about here in a minute. But first, mm. for the dad who maybe is hearing you say that, or the parents who are hearing you say, I love the conviction you're giving around why we would let our kids commit this kind of time to so many other things. Why wouldn't Christians commit this time to discipling their sons? But what wisdom or pastor can you offer the man who heard that and said, but I'm raising man, multiple sons or a bunch of sons, different ages and maturity levels. John raised uh, one son. And we'll talk more about your daughter here in a second. But you raise, what do you say to the dad who's going, I've got a, a teenager and a middle schooler and an elementary school kid How do they navigate that kind of determination with that many children at the same time? Well, one thing I want to say is part of it is a family dynamic. And so like you've got to build a family culture. And so to me, that's that's almost a larger question. Um, I want to say, yeah, I mean, look, let's all be honest. Parenting is hard. Yeah. And it's getting harder and harder in our world today. The issues seem so complex. The generational gap, which means like parentals, firsthand parental experience of what kids are going through, I feel like feels so much, so much more distant than what our kids are facing, the acuteness of the issues our kids are facing. So number one, I want to start by acknowledging this stuff is hard and just give a standing ovation to all parents everywhere. Like Amen. hang in there, stick, stay the course. It is very complex. Um, secondarily, I would say, yeah, the family dynamics thing I think is important, which is create traditions that work for you. I tell people all the time, do what you can, not what you can't. The most important thing is consistency. So if you're like, well, I can't do it, like I can't do it every day, then I'm like, then don't do it because if you can't and you try, it'll kill you. Mm. So do what you can, not what you can't. But then I also want to say this, you can do more than you think. Mm. You can do more than you think. So That's good. I would just say to dads, you've got to find a rhythm that works for you with your situation, with your family and in your own dynamics. 
That's good. Very good. Did you ever get resistance from your son in meeting every day? Um, yes, of, of course I did. He's a, a teenage boy who uh, loves, <laughs> loves to sleep in. Okay, just checking. <laughs> just didn't know if this was something he like popped up and was like, okay, I'm ready. Or- no, but, no, so, but again, th- you're asking a great question. So the, the book actually comes from a course called The Primal Path, okay? That's right. what I mm-hmm. originally uh, sort of wrote. And <clears throat> people like The Primal Path, that sounds like vampiric and like, you know, stereotypical male. I'm like, you try motivate a 13-year-old kid to get out of bed with like <laughs> the healthy formation of masculine. The kids don't get out of bed for that stuff. So I wanted to, to sound like, you know, somewhat motivating. Um, That's good. I think my son was committed to the process and it started out with basically extrinsic motivation, external motivation with a lot of rewards. And by the end of it, he was setting his alone, getting up because he really perceived like, hey, man, I'm getting wisdom and access to stuff my peers don't have. Mm. The second my son realized this wasn't about him just like getting his head filled with Bible verses, but it was really about becoming a skillful, competent, godly man, Mm. like that motivation hit him because he was dealing with a situation with his his friends and in the workplace that he needed tools to navigate. And he realized, oh, this is what my dad's doing. He's helping me learn to be an adult and thrive in the world. So at some point it, it, it did become internalized. Praise God. That makes me want to cry just thinking about that. Um, Well, I know the book focuses on the work that you did with your son entering into manhood. Can you give us a little window into what family discipleship looked like for your daughter? Yes, I have just the most amazing daughter. We still call her to this day, sweet baby Haley, though she's almost 19. (laughs) That is her, like, just she's universally recognized as sweet baby Haley. Um, So, you know, my my daughter was, the whole point, so I want to say the book's called The Intentional Father. It's not called the perfect father. Mm. It's it's about moving towards your kids with intentionality. And one of the points I try and make in the book is intentionality is about understanding the kid that God has given you who is in front of you. Yeah. And a lot of parents do a lot of damage because they just project general wisdom into their kids' lives rather than asking what do they need at this particular stage. So what I did with my daughter was very different than what I did with my son. With my son, it was like meta-intentional and pretty heavy. What Mm. I did with my daughter, my daughter just like had such a different journey than my son. So I basically, so here's what I did. Each of my kids, I gave one night a week that was basically like dad time, okay? So it was like you do what, this time is available for you. We'll do whatever you want to do. I try to enter into their world and um, unite around their hobbies. So for my daughter, she loved cookies. And you, and so like when you hear that, you're like, huh, New York City's cookie scene is staggering. Okay, we're talking like whatever you're thinking about cookies, you're not thinking about what we are thinking about. You, you haven't lived till you've had a Levain cookie. So if you come to New York, just huh. put that on your list, Levain cookies. Levain cookies. So, Got it. Yeah, so we would, we would basically, she was into photography. So we would go to a different cookie shop every week in a different neighborhood. And we would basically do like a photo hunt, like photograph either a person or a place or an item or a color. And then we'd sort of like, you know, just show our work to each other, our family at the end of the night. Um, So, yeah, so that's what I did. I established a relationship by entering into their world. So I did that almost every week or very, very regularly weekly with my kids. That laid a foundation for when my daughter was ready. And so what 
ultimately what I did with my daughter is a thing that I called 50 pieces of my heart. And mm. it's like 50 deposits every dad needs to make in his daughter's life before she leaves home. So I would I wrote her six daily devotionals on a topic and then we would go out and have a dinner and talk about what she got out of that topic. Wow. Mm. And so I did 50 of those on all the things I think young women can only, you know, they can, the young women want these things from their dads. Mm -hmm. So I did a one-year journey for that. So I'm in the process of turning that into a book, but I have to. It was all personalized to my daughter, so I have to sort of strip it of all the personal stuff to make it a bit sure. more generic. Sure. But that's what I did with her, and um, you know, gosh, when you know when my son left, I was like, he did a gap year, and I was like, charge into the world, young man. The safety net <laughs> under your life is huge. Fail <laughs> forward, go for it. You know, yeah. with my daughter, you know, it was such a Oh, it was such a heartbreaking moment. We're hugging uh, out the front of a university. My wife had left the day before and, you know, she's saying to me, I need more time, Dad. I need more wisdom no. from you. I'm not quite ready. And I was like, homegirl, this is all we got. I'll always be here. But, like, I was like, man, that was that was hard to let her go. Oh, but even man. her saying, saying, like perceiving that she was getting a wisdom deposit for me. And one of the, like, honestly, the greatest compliments of my life and I didn't even realize this. My wife pointed it out. My daughter walked me around introducing and said, you've got to meet my dad. He is literally the wisest man you will ever meet. Wow. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you know. So to me, that's what I was trying to give her. I talked to her about being like a godly, wise young woman. Yeah. Those were the two things, be godly yeah. and be wise. So that's basically what we built our sort of discipleship stuff around. Hey friends, it's March and that means Easter is right around the corner. In fact, Easter is in March this year. It's part of the reason I'm pumped to tell you about one of our sponsors who's got a really special Easter deal. This is a great time to get some new resources to disciple your family. Our friends over at Lithos Kids are having an Easter basket sale. They've got the brand new Little Pilgrims Big Journey complete box set. It's now available. Guys, I can't tell you how much I love this resource. If you don't have it, you need to go check it out. Kids and parents have loved reading about Bunyan's beloved tale of Christian and his adventure to follow the king's path to Celestial City. And now you can get all three books in one box set along with a map and it comes with a coloring book and the whole thing is just 60 bucks. You can use the code FAMILY10 to get 10% off your entire order at Lithos Kids right now. So what a great discipleship opportunity. To find all this, go to lithoskids.com, see all the items in their Easter promo, including their new release, The Parables of Jesus, and the Kingdom of God Bible Storybook. Guys, we love Lithos Kids. You're going to love them too. Go check it out today, lithoskids.com, and remember the promo, Family 10, to get 10% off your entire order. Hey listeners, we live in a world where anxiety, depression, and weariness seem to be the basic descriptors of our lives. For many of us, our calendars and our plates are overfull, yet our lives still lack joy. But it doesn't have to be this way. Jesus invites you to have true and abundant joy that's only found in Him. In John 15, Jesus reveals three very surprising pathways to finding this type of joy. You can discover these pathways in the new book, Overflowing Joy, by author and Bible teacher Tara Dew. This is available at LifeWay.com, and you can save 40% off with the code JOY40. Again, that's J-O-Y, the number four, the number zero, at LifeWay.com. The new book is Overflowing Joy by Tara Dew. Check it out.
John, that's a beautiful story. You're making my wife cry over there, thinking about raising our sons, thinking about being a daughter. I'm positive. Uh, it's a beautiful story. Now, looking back, looking at the role that you've played is so intentionally, so diligently in your daughter's life and your son's life. Anything you wish you would have done different, like anything that now as a father that's an empty nester, that if you got to go back to 13 again with your kids, if you would have gotten to tell John Tyson at that point, what would you have done different? You know, it's, I mean, maybe this is my personality. I don't know, but I would be more intense. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> like, man, I mean, I would easily have traded several multi episode next Netflix shows. You know, if you watch a mm. show, like, I don't, is, is Ted Lasso's a big show? Yeah. Right now or whatever. I don't, is there two seasons of that? Yes, sir. Is it an hour an episode? It's maybe 10 episodes. That's 20 hours. I would 100% take those 20 hours and take my daughter out for 20 meals. Wow. I would 100% hang out with my son for those 20 hours. I would, I would, I would just get more time with my kids and I spend a lot of time with my kids. Yeah. I love that. Wow. I love getting to talk to you about this. I want to like keep you here for a little longer than we had planned. Um, another question I have for you is uh, about your wife. What role did your wife play in the primal path? Um, you know, she played only a, a very minor role, which was she did this, we did this thing called the severing dinner, which sounded too harsh and the publishers put back on. And I think it was reduced to a directional dinner <laughs> and so that she could point him in the direction of uh, manhood. Um, so my wife, so one of the things I, I realized, so I did all this research on like how other societies raised men. Yeah. And they basically had this universal six-step process, remove the child from uh, a childlike environment, death of childhood through ceremony, um, formation by elders in the community around three areas, religion, story, and roles, uh, the ordeal where they were sent out on a test to see if that internalized these lessons, blessing from the community of men, and then reintegration into society. And at the start of that process, the mothers played a role and um, they would they would basically like cut their sons off for a bit. Mm. And And I was like, okay, well, you know, there's got to be something here that's there's, there's a reason they did that, you know. It sounds barbaric, but this is what, you know, it's the reason they did that. And so I said to my wife, hey, you got to do this suffering dinner. And this is what it means. You've got to take Nate out and you've got to bless him and you've got to tell him that you're handing him over to me to be turned into a man. You, you know, you can, like, here's some guidelines, do it. And, you know, she came back and fell on the bed and cried and was like, that was awful. The thing is, so the thing is, I asked my, so I, I'm going to answer the question. I'm going to come back and answer it more fully. But I asked my son when we were walking across Spain, we did this 500-mile hike called the Camino de Santiago to close it out. And um, it was just so epic. And I used that word very intentionally. It was epic. I said to him, hey, Nate, I'm getting some pushback on the severing dinner. Do you think I should leave that out? And he was so insistent. He was like, Dad, no, that was so important for me psychologically. Like it really helped me understand what was actually happening. And my mm. basic take is that young boys go back to their mums for comfort and mums often side with their sons against the father's discipline out of empathy. Mm. And, you know, she would – and, you know, that can be damaging. It can be damaging for a man's formation. And so anyway, so that was the only role she played. But then again, you know, they obviously had a great relationship and they spent time together, but that was the kickoff. Um, so yes, what she would do, you know, in his life was like hang out with him and be a great mom and talk him through his problems. And, you know, my wife's a little more sort of, my wife is like a breathtaking listener. 
I mean, mm. if you want to feel heard, talk to my wife. She's on no social media. She has no t- – like she's the most fully present person I know. And so my son would like talk through a lot of his problems and stuff with her and he would come to me for – like it's like what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2. I was like a mother. So, you know, she was kind of like gentle and nurturing mm. and then I was like encouraging and exhorting and urging him to live a life worthy of the you know, sort of the calling. So it was definitely a dual parenting role. And then, we, you know, we have a family Sabbath every week. So we have like – a whole series of family traditions that we would do. And there was obviously a lot of shared stuff that happened too. Sure. That's one of the things I love about what you give us a great picture of in the book. What you're talking about now is that your family has these rituals. You have these traditions, you have these roles, you have your culture built out. And it's not, it's in many ways countercultural to kind of the American Christian idea of just kind of going with the flow and, and also going to a church. One mm. of the things I've heard you talk about that that wasn't in the book, but I loved loved when you shared it is, mm. I think you described it as maybe the longest conversation you had with your son in one of your mornings, which was uh, yeah. walking through a, a moral dilemma revolving yes. around yes. hypothetically being co- cornered by a friend's parents. I thought it was yes. a brilliant question. Will you share that? Uh, Chelsea hasn't heard it. Okay, yes. Yeah. So I was, when I was a youth pastor, I remember... Um, there was these books and I can't remember who put them out. I don't know if it was group publishing or someone, but they were called Moral Dilemmas. And it was basically guides to help kids think ethically. Mm. And I don't know where they are. I have not been able to find them online anywhere, but I just remember the big idea. And the big idea was this, bring the kingdom of God into your kids' world by creating tension they have to resolve biblically. That's good. You know, so... So instead of just lecturing and dropping principles, get into their world and present a crisis they have to wrestle through. And um, so, yeah, I, I said to my son, you know, one morning I was like, okay, what is the right thing to do in this situation? You're over a friend's house and his parents don't want him to date a girl. He goes off to the bathroom and the parents corner you and say, is he dating this girl or not? How do you respond? Use the Bible for your answer. <laughs> so that was the that was the dilemma. And my son's like literally, he's like, oh, oh, like he's like got his hands over his face, like, oh, oh, that's a tough one. And he was like, gosh, like is it okay to lie? Like Rahab's in the the hall of faith because she lied and said the spies weren't there and she hid them. Mm. That led to like, can you lie to Nazi officers if you're hiding Jewish people mm. in the hollow? I mean, it just went all over the map. Yeah. And uh, we talked about graded absolutism and situational ethics. And I mean, like it went deep. <laughs> and he ultimately concluded that it was an unfair expectation for parents to use their authority in such a way in the life of someone who was not their son. Yeah. So the ultimate answer was like, you would have to talk to him about that as your son. That was the ultimate answer. But like... Mm. That like took a long time to arrive at with a long, long discussion. So again, make your kids think, you know. But by the way, um, I, I want to just comment on something you said. You said, you know, that's countercultural to like much of American family Christianity. Look, can I just say something honestly with all due respect? Most yeah. of American family Christianity is, a, is failing our children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 70% of kids are still walking away from their faith when they get to college. Hmm. You know, like if if you designed any other thing where it was like it had a 70% failure rate, do you think you'd redesign it? Yeah. Of course you would. Yeah. You would be like, hey, wow. we've got a crisis here. Let's address it. And so I make no apologies for my desire to create cultures of, of intentionality. Yeah. 
And I think that's why the Lord gave you uh, your butcher experience, your, yes. to be ready to sever, your pastoral experience, your cross-cultural experience. I feel like, John, you are primed to, to set up families to address these things. Well, yeah, I mean, I just, I know the pain, having been a youth pastor, and then, you know, maybe 80% plus of people in our church in New York City are in their 20s. Yeah. And I'm, I, am, I am undoing the consequences of unintentional parents. Yes, mm. that's great. You know, and, exactly. and the thing I want to say is like, I know, I know parents want to get this right. I assume the best in parents. I'm not yeah. here bringing a word of condemnation. I'm trying to bring a word of inspiration, which is parents, your kids, they may not be giving you feedback that makes it feel like they value what you're doing, but trust me, they ache yeah. for your intentionality mm. and your invention in their life. Even if they're screaming, I, I remember even now in college, like when I'm talking with my daughter, she's like, you know, I want to be careful how I say this, but it's like, she's like, dad, a lot of my friends are like, I wish my dad was that involved in my life. Mm. You know, she's like, she's seeing now amongst her friends, many of the issues they're having being away from home for the first time is because their dads aren't around. So I, 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 I know what it's like to have regrets. I know what it's like to have a full heart and to have done a couple of things right. And I just, I want people to experience that, you know? Yeah. Mm. That's the motivation. Wow. That's good. Well, John, it seems like a lot of the work you did in discipling your son was very formalized. Y'all had your trips planned, your regular meetings, resources that you read together. Um, we want to know if there's any aspect of your interactions that happened more informally, things that just came up that you weren't expecting or prepared for that played an important role in your discipleship. Oh, yes. I mean, the, the basic point, here's what I basically went to do. Would you pay $120,000 for a college degree where they said, I don't know, he'll just get through it in the next four years. <laughs> you would not drop a dollar on that school. So why would you do that with your own son? Uh-huh. Well, what's our plan? Well, I don't know. Let's just see what happens. So I basically <laughs> tried, I tried to do what I would describe as, yeah, a scope and sequence. Yeah. Which is, you know, like, like literally like a college degree was like, or any good education, which is like, hey, year by year, unit by unit. But, so the, but the whole point of that was for one big goal, and here's what it was, to build a relationship where you could talk about anything. Mm. The whole point was for what I call these jazz moments where it's like if everything's in, like a jazz musician closes his or her eyes and plays from the heart without a script. It's all in them. Mm. I love a good symphony. But that is like, you know, it's you're, you're measured by how perfectly you play something that was written out. I was yeah. like, man, I just want to create these environments of connection with my son where he feels free to bring anything up. And I'm telling you, sometimes it was just I would notice something in a strain of his voice or I'd notice over the course of a night he'd bring up some small event four or five times or back reference it. And I'd go, that mattered to him. Let me say, I'd say, hey, Nate, you've mentioned that like four or five times, man. Did that hit you in a different way than you anticipated emotionally? Or did that mean to you maybe more than you thought and you're trying to process it? And, you know, you'd often say, yeah, I'm still like trying to figure out like exactly what happened. So to me, it's just... Be in the room, be available, pay attention. And that yeah. creates the way for all of these beautiful, spontaneous moments to be able to happen, you know? I love that. So the moments did play a significant role. A lot of the book is about milestones. It's about these big trips. Uh, you mentioned before your hike, your European hike. Yeah. 
when you think when you uh, talk with your son now, as he processes the primal path, yes, I assume that those milestones, the jumping into the ocean and back out—I think it was the ocean—and yes. back out again at the beginning, uh, going on the hike. When he recounts those, what is the spiritual connection for him in those? And I can think, you know, any parent, secular or not, can think of, man, that was a special moment for us as a family. What is the, what's the spiritual leadership point that you think has really stuck with your son from those big moments? Well, I, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know if he got like any massive spiritual moments from it. What he got was like, dang, if my dad loves me this much, how much more must God love me? Mm. Mm. You know, like he he had he had a good, I think, experience of a human father that would make and so I would often say to him, Hey man, look, I'm giving you all I got here. Like I'm giving you the best I have as who I am at this point in my life. And I want you to know that everything I'm giving you is just like a drop in the ocean of what God is doing in your life if you just pay attention. Mm. On my best day, I am a faint whisper of the passionate, ferocious love that God has for you. Mm. And so like, you know, so to me a lot more of it, you know, when he was running out of the ocean, I think he was just probably having a human experience. Yeah. You You know, like I don't think, I think, you know, I know my son's story pretty well. I think his most dynamic spiritual moments were, I think the role I played was that I created a desire and openness in him and environments where they could happen. So I think I facilitated those more than I directed those. I created mm-hmm. space for them to happen. Like I built the altar and put the wood on, but if the fire didn't fall, it was just like an altar. You know what I'm wow. saying? Not an encounter. So, yeah. and then, you know, in the kindness of God, God showed up, mm. changed his life, you know? That is the kindness of God. Uh, mm. Two, two, more really quick questions, but one of my favorite parts of your book, and I, like I said, I devoured it. I loved it. I'm your target audience, audience, okay. <laughs> obviously. But uh, the five shifts, you talk about what you're trying to accomplish with your son in these five shifts, the difference in my mind between boyhood and manhood, what needs to change by the time he leaves your home. Can you give, for the people who uh, maybe haven't read the book or for those who have that you give a little bit more insight into, what are those five shifts and why was that an important part of what you're trying to accomplish? What I would say, and this is basically sort of like educational theory, okay? So how do you know you're making progress? I feel like a part of our wiring is, we feel good when we can see we're actually getting somewhere. When it feels like you're stuck in a rut and you're not learning, you're not progressing, it doesn't feel like there's been any growth. And you know, like who wants to do the same thing forever and feel like it's making no difference and there's no yeah. change? So part of that was like a psychological framing. So I took those ideas um, from Richard Raw, who I have soured on as of late in his later writings, but mm. think the book I got him from, Adam's Return, was a great book. Um, and he basically says there's like five rules to manhood. You know, and they, they're, they're just like, they're so blunt and hard. Like uh, life is hard. Life is, you know, life is not about you. You're not that important. You're going to die. Yeah. I and mean, they're like super brutal rules. <laughs> and I was like, but how do I put them into a shift? So I was like, okay, so for life is hard. I was like, from ease to difficulty. Boys want ease. Men embrace difficulty. Mm. Okay, self to others. If life's not about yourself, boys focus on themselves. Men focus on others. Yeah, you know, like from the whole to a part. One part of the delusion is we think the universe began when we were born, and it's like a giant spotlight effect. Like the whole thing is just a stage for ourselves. No, you're a tiny part of God's great God's great story. Um, control to surrender. You know, the fundamental lie of religion is that you you can use God to control 
the dangers of life. Mm. But the truth is God is in control and our response is to surrender. Wow. And then, you know, only a fool lives for the temporary, but, you know, men live for the eternal, you know, for the joy set before him. We've got to have that bigger perspective. So I wanted to be able to say to my son, almost like you draw it out, on one side is I default to ease, on the other side I embrace difficulty. Where are you on this continuum? How do you know and how do you develop an instinct where you just lean in and do the hard things? So I, I basically, and we did stuff like, so my, my son has a fear of heights. And so we went to the highest ropes course in Australia. It is so high. Mm. And, you know, I was like, you're ready, man. Let's do this. And he just cruised through. It was amazing confronting something that he was afraid of. You know, so anyway, I, I try to do big things and small things. One thing I want to highlight about the formation of these events is I talked about that six-step process where this, this area called the ordeal. Mm. And this is where, you know, in Australia, Aboriginal young men were sent out for like up to six months into the wilderness right. to survive off the land on their own. And um, the Inuit societies in Greenland had to go and hunt a sea lion or a, a, car- uh, a caribou. Like, like these are like real life, shocking, overwhelming experiences to form you. Yeah. And that's what the gap year that Nate went on was supposed to be, his version of the ideal, leaving home but not in college, wrestling with these things. And let me tell you, my son came back a different person. Hmm. So for a classic, for Easter difficulty, Nate used to be a complainer. He just would whine. And you know, Jesus tells the parable, Jesus tells the parable like, you know, what's better? Someone who says I'll do it but never does, but then someone who says I won't do it but does it. Well, my son was like, I won't do it but always did it, kid. Wow. And then he was on this gap year and two weeks in, some of the other guys, he was on a squad with just guys, started mocking him about how he's just like a whiner. And then he just for the first time got this external peer reflection, you're a whiny little kid. And he was just like, I don't want to be that at all. Mm. And to this day, my son rarely complains. Like he almost in a military style, if I ask him to do something, he would be like, and he would just go do it. He just <laughs> handles stuff. And that, so I gave him the vision I tried to create some experiences, but it was like the community of peers where he realized, I want to embrace difficulty. I do not want to resort back to ease. So the, a big point I want to make is you've got to put them in these formative environments. It's not just a content dump. It's not just a family mm. devotion. That stuff's important and vital, but this stuff has to be tested. And so we've got to create environments where that stuff can be lived out. Wow. Mm. Before we let you go, would you mind sharing with us, uh, what are the prayers you have for your kids right now? If our listeners want to pray for the Tyson family, what can they ask God for on your behalf? What would you like to see the Lord change? Or what are you, what are you just asking God for right now? Well, I mean, you know, I'm just so I'm asking that, that my kids will get discernment on the good works that God has planned in advance for them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my son's about to my son's about to go to Turkey and do a, a missions trip for four months or something. And I'm like, dang, Turkey's like that's like not a user it's not like you're going to Guatemala and yeah. it's like a not a user friendly environment. You know what I mean? Like it's it's a deeply Muslim context. So just like they gotta give him discernment, direction, protection. And um, you know, that they'd marry the people that God has for them. You know, you shift. Wow. Like when you're a kid, you're involved in every year. But when you're an adult, it basically becomes about three things. Who are they going to marry? What are they going to do for a living? And how's their faith? Mm. And so adult friendship is shifted to those areas for me. Hey, how you doing? How's your heart? What are you learning? Um, you know, like who are you dating? And what are you thinking about doing with your life? Those are the three big things wow. that I would appreciate prayer. Mm. Well, fair dinkum. I've loved this conversation. 
Thank you, John Tyson. That uh, was like not bad. Okay. I, <laughs> not bad, not it good was, though. It wasn't great. The tone was off. Okay. So you're like, fair dinkum, mate. I love this convo. Oh, good. I'm gonna, that's the sound bite right there. All right. Well, We're not even can... cool enough to know American slang. So like, why, <laughs> why would we try to master another culture? Yeah, that's Let, Let's just focus on what we're doing. That's good. <laughs> if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on uh, social media, the Family Discipleship Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you think it's as important as we do to disciple your families, you can give us a great review wherever you listen to the podcast and share this episode with one of your friends. John, thanks so much for joining us. No worries. It was honestly a joy chatting with you guys. 